This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. That is new from Dolly Parton, kind of an anthem for our times here at later in this program. First, we talk with Texas atmospheric scientist Andrew Dessler. What is happening with the world's biggest greenhouse gas? And no, it is not carbon dioxide. Dr. Ben Livney explains a developing disaster affecting one quarter of the world's people. Is it too late to stop horrible climate heating? An American student asks Dr. Dessler after his 2016 presentation in Arkansas. So I'm a student at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, and um, currently my, my focus in, is in mathematics. But I do wonder, um, I mean, is the damage that's being done by climate change, I mean, is it just inevitable? Or do you believe, without going completely back to pre-industrial revolution times, is there any way we can truly prevent the, the damage that, that essentially we, we bring about? I mean, is there any way to... Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't want to, yeah, I wanted to, uh, you know, when you, get, when you talk about climate, you always want to give an, op, you know, they, they always say don't, don't depress the audience. Um, so, so, you know, my, here's my analogy. My analogy is imagine you're driving down a road and the car ahead of you stops really fast. Maybe you're tailgating a little, and you realize immediately you're gonna hit the car ahead of you. So the question is, what do you do? Well, you still hit the brakes because you wanna hit the car ahead of you going as slowly as possible. Uh, and it, the longer you wait to the brakes, the more damage you're gonna do. And that's very similar to the situation we're in right now. I mean, we're changing the climate. Uh, you know, we've increased carbon dioxide from 280 parts per million pre-industrial to we just went over 400 parts per million now. And that is going to change the climate. We can't avoid that. So we're going to get, we're going to have some damage. This is absolutely unavoidable. The question we ask ourselves, though, is if we start now, we can head off very large warmings that are going to occur in the second half of this century. We can't do much about the climate for the next few decades. That's essentially baked into things we've already done. But we do have control over the stuff at the end of the 21st century. I mean, you know, stuff for your kids. You know, you might, given health, you might be alive. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's, so we do have, we do, we do have a choice to make about what's going to happen. The other thing I like to emphasize is, and I haven't talked about this at all, is that once you emit carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it's effectively irreversible. And so, and because carbon dioxide has a very long lifetime in the atmosphere, if we release a lot of carbon dioxide in the next few decades, we're going to warm the climate for the next 10,000 years. So people in the year 5,000 could really be justifiably furious at us for not doing something about it because we knew it's we know what's happening we know what we're doing and you know we have 50 years or you know to make a decision about what we're going to do and so we do have a lot of control but we can't avoid everything i mean that's that's the problem but we do have a choice to make about how much damage we're gonna have just like you know do you hit the brakes and you see the car ahead of you stop yeah you do because you don't want you want to hit it as slow as possible radio eco shock the oceans are hotter than ever. Record heat waves crash across whole continents. We know more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere leads to warming, but the amount of CO2 up there is tiny compared to another major greenhouse factor that nobody really talks about. That is water vapor, and it feeds back even more warming. Why, how, and how much? When NASA explains how atmospheric water vapor amplifies Earth's greenhouse effect, they quote Dr. Andrew Dessler. 
He is the well-known professor of atmospheric sciences and chair in geoscience at Texas A&M University. From the heart of Texas, Andrew Dessler, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, let's dive right in. Andrew, how could water in the atmosphere, quote, double the climate warming caused by increased levels of carbon dioxide? Right. That's a really great question that I've spent many years studying. So uh, the thing you have to understand about our atmosphere is that most of the atmosphere doesn't trap heat because most of our atmosphere is oxygen and nitrogen, O2 and N2. But there's just a few trace species that trap heat. And the most important of them is water vapor. Uh, And the second most important is carbon dioxide. So those are the two most important greenhouse gases. Uh, Now, the thing to understand about water vapor and how it's different than carbon dioxide is that water vapor is not something that humans emit or is, is directly controlled by humans at all. Instead, the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere is set by evaporation from the ocean. So... Over time, the oceans are always evaporating, and then the atmosphere is always raining. And so those two processes are really the control of how much water vapor is in the atmosphere. And water vapor, as I said before, is a greenhouse gas. So it traps heat, and it's really responsible for much of the warmth of our planet. It's the reason why the planet's not this frozen ball of ice. So when we talk about the water vapor feedback... What we're talking about is this vicious cycle where humans uh, add a little carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, and that comes from burning fossil fuels. So we add a little carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide traps heat. That warms the surface of the Earth. That increases the evaporation of water off the oceans, and it also warms the atmosphere so uh, so the air can hold more water vapor. So the initial carbon dioxide leads to more water in the atmosphere, and then that additional water traps more heat, and that doubles the uh, warming you get from the carbon dioxide by itself. So if it weren't for water vapor, then our carbon emissions really wouldn't have done anywhere near the damage that they are doing right now. That's exactly right, that the direct warming that we get from carbon dioxide is about a third of the actual warming, where the rest of it comes from what these, these we call feedbacks, these vicious cycles like water vapor, ice albedo, clouds, things like that. So the laws of thermodynamics suggest water vapor in the atmosphere can increase by around 7% for each degree C of warming, and the planet's already over 1 degree C hotter than pre-industrial times, and that sounds like a lot of water going up into the air. Is it possible to imagine how much wetter the atmosphere is these days? Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's hard for people to understand how much water is in the atmosphere, but it is a lot. In a hot, humid region like you know Houston during the summer or the maritime region in the tropics, uh, water vapor can be a few percent of the atmosphere. There's a lot of water in the atmosphere, and all of that water is trapping heat. And so this also makes it less comfortable. <laughs> so it does a bunch of things that we don't like. Well, this may sound a bit of a silly question, but if about 90% of the water transferred to the atmosphere comes from world oceans, would that slightly lower sea level if all other factors were equal? Yeah, absolutely. But you have to realize it's a tiny, tiny amount. So the oceans are on average about four kilometers deep. And um, the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere, if you condense it all, 
might be a centimeter of water. So you're talking about a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of sea level change due to increased atmospheric water vapor. But certainly, if you add water to the atmosphere, that water has to come from somewhere. And it is going to come from the oceans primarily. And so, yeah, it is going to very slightly reduce sea level. But so little, nobody would ever notice. Well, for water vapor transmission, does it matter that the oceans are currently hotter than ever and experiencing marine heat waves, in fact? I mean, this is part of the overall cycle of the water vapor feedback. As the Earth warms, you know, the oceans warm along with the rest of the planet, and that's what drives increased evaporation from the oceans, and it also, you know, heats the atmosphere and then the atmosphere can hold more water vapor. So those, so the fact that the oceans are really hot is, you know, consistent with what we think is going on with this vicious cycle of water vapor. The World Meteorological Organization predicts Earth will cross 1.5 degrees C of warming at least one year in the next five, not permanently, but we'll get there. And does that mean then that there could be 10% more water vapor than pre-industrial times? Certainly, the, we expect that the water vapor will increase, you know, the, the fractional increase in water vapor will be constant with every degree of warming. So, yeah, I mean, it's the, as the climate warms, the water in the atmosphere is going to continue to go up, and that's going to continue to amplify the heating we get from carbon dioxide. So that's certainly, you know, we, we're never going to run out of water vapor to add to the atmosphere because there's so much water in the oceans. And we're getting more extreme rainfall events like the recent downpour in North Italy where six months of rain fell in 36 hours. Is that related to what we're talking about here, more water in the air? Yes. I mean, it's, it's, rainfall is different than the water vapor feedback, but you're right. They're all connected through changes in the strength of the hydrologic cycle. So we do, you know, one of the longest predictions of climate science it was predicted well before it was observed is that we're going to get more intense rain events. And, and again, part of that is that the atmosphere has more water in it. But then there are other things going on also. And indeed, we see observations uh, around the world that validate that we're getting more intense rain events. So it's a, this is another really successful prediction of climate science. If the atmosphere is getting wetter, why is drought and desertification expanding in some parts of the world? And does that maldistribution mean some places could become so wet that they're like pluvial? Right. So when you think about the hydrologic cycle, again, this is slightly different than the water vapor feedback. When you think about rainfall, the models make predictions that we validated in the observations. And among these predictions are that the intense rain events are going to get more intense, and indeed we see that. And then the other thing we're going to see, we expect to see is that there'll be more variability in the rainfall. In other words, when more of your rain is falling in the heaviest events, it also means that there's going to be longer periods when you're not getting any rain. And so the net result of this is when it rains, it's going to really rain. It's going to flood. And then when it's not raining, you're going to have these long periods with no rain. And, and so this increased variability of the rainfall means that you end up with more of both extremes, more floods and more droughts. And that's just a consequence of the basic physics. And again, models have predicted this, and you know we can see it in the observations. So this is definitely something that we should expect to see. Andrew Dessler, there are proposals to remove carbon dioxide from the air to slow global warming. Would it work to reduce the amount of water vapor, too? 
Right. So water vapor is, again, the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere is set by the surface temperature. As the surface temperature of the planet warms, you end up with more water in the atmosphere. And if the surface temperature cools, you'll end up with less water vapor. And then these changes in water vapor, again, amplify the original change. So if you warm the climate a little, you get more water vapor. That gives you additional heating. If you cool the climate, the water vapor would condense out, and that would amplify the cooling. Now, if we are able to pull some carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere through what people refer to as carbon dioxide removal through one way or another, that would be the exact opposite of us adding carbon dioxide and getting warming. If we pulled carbon dioxide out, that would indeed introduce a cooling trend, then the water vapor would go down and the the decrease in water vapor would amplify the temperature decline. So, you know, this is something that people are seriously discussing because you, if you look out the window, you have to ask yourself, are we really cutting our emissions fast enough to avoid what many people consider to be the dangerous levels of, of warming? Yeah, we hear about a threat from methane. Everybody talks about it. Research vessels go to the Arctic groups form. Water vapor in the atmosphere can double the impacts of our greenhouse gases. Why is hardly anyone talking about this? It's very important to understand the difference between a forcing and a feedback. So when humans do something that perturbs the climate, like add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere or add methane to the atmosphere, those things uh, perturb the climate, and then the water vapor responds to it. Human emissions of water vapor are, are basically zero because, again, the dominant source of water in the atmosphere is evaporation from the oceans, which are really big. So if you ask the question, what are the things that humans have to do if we want to stabilize the climate, it has nothing to do with water vapor because we don't directly control that. What humans need to do is we need to stop the forcing of the climate. We need to stop the things that are starting the chain, the causal chain that warms the climate, that water vapor that amplifies. So, you know, the, the, the levers that humans have is carbon dioxide and methane. Now, uh, again, it's important to understand that those things are amplified by water vapor, but humans don't control water vapor. So there's no, uh, there's no policy that humans could do. There's nothing, no actions we could take that directly affect water vapor. We only affect indirectly through carbon dioxide and through methane. So if, if we want to control the climate problem, if we want to stabilize the climate and, and you know, control the impacts, we have to stop doing the things that are forcing the climate. And those are mainly emissions of carbon dioxide, but also methane, nitrous oxide, uh, the fluorocarbons, things like that. You are listening to Atmospheric Sciences Professor Andrew Dessler. I'm Alex Smith, and this is Radio EcoShock. We've been talking about work, really, that you published around 2008, and you've moved on to other things, including more of a focus on the intersection of humans and the environment. Uh, What do you mean, and how is that going? Yeah, so I spent much of my career over the last 20 years looking at the global climate physics problem. And, you know, I live in Texas, and we had a big blackout about two years ago. In 2021, we were out of power for several days. Uh, You know, hundreds of people died, $100 billion of damages. I mean, it was really an incredibly unpleasant experience. So what I realized as I lived through that 
is that we don't live in a robust society. People always say, oh, we'll get through it. We'll figure out ways to adapt to climate change. What they don't realize is how painful those adaptations are going to be. I mean, people are going to die. People are going to be ruined. People are going to be much poorer because of this. And, you know, the, the blackout was caused by temperatures that weren't that much colder than we normally experience. You know, it routinely gets into the 20s Fahrenheit in Texas, and, you know, the blackouts occurred when temperature got to maybe closer to 10 degrees Fahrenheit in Texas, which is cold for Texas, but, you know, only maybe 5 degrees Celsius colder than we get every year, and that was enough to completely destroy, you know, our, our, our infrastructure imploded at that point, and we can expect de- similar departures on the high side on the warm side, coming up. And, and I really suddenly understood that that was the problem we need to solve. We really have largely solved the, the global physics problem of climate change. We, really, we understand this. Models can predict warming. Uh, essentially, nothing happens in the climate system today that we haven't predicted. The, the places where we really are shocked consistently, it's in how impactful these are on human society. And I really kind of decided at that point that that's what I needed to study. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because a study just out in the last few days estimates if a power blackout hits cities during a heat wave, a large part of the population would need to go to the ER for heat care. They'd be damaged in their health. Uh, In Phoenix, it was up to 50% of the people, so obviously that would be a disaster. Americans could get a nasty shock if the power goes out, which is happening more often in recent years. Maybe Texas was lucky your big blackout was in cold weather. Oh, yeah. No, I, I am extremely concerned about a major blackout during a heat wave when power demand is at its highest. You know, if you look at a lot of the cities, a lot of cities have extreme heat plans, and, you know, it's open cooling centers, and, and you know, people go to the library. And then you ask, well, you know, do these cooling centers have emergency power backup? You know, what happens if the power goes out? And the answer is no city that I know of is actually planning for that. And so I think that you're exactly right. People are in for a nasty surprise. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, I know that in Texas, the power grid is much more optimized for hot temperatures and cold temperatures. So I think the kind of large-scale blackout we had uh, in 2021 is, is less likely in the summer than the winter. But nevertheless, it's something that does worry me a lot. So in a paper published this February 2023, you and graduate research assistant Yang Ho Lee published the paper, Future Temperature-Related Deaths in the U.S., the Impact of Climate Change, Demographics, and Adaptation. Now, I think death is important. Obviously, it's kind of final, but I don't like it as an indicator of heat damages. As you say in the paper, people adapt to heat in many ways, and Heat deaths in Europe, for example, went down after the great mass deaths of the 2003 heat wave. So heat can go up and deaths can go down to a point, yes? Oh, yeah, and I I 100% agree. Uh, You know, the focus on deaths as a metric of climate damage, I think, is completely misplaced. That The the real impact of climate change is not going to be on people actually dying immediately due to these climate disasters. And, And certainly, you're right, after 2003... Uh, people adapted. You know, people who are rich bought air conditioners, and, you know, people who are poor learned to, learned to tough it out. And so I, I 100% agree with you. But it was, uh, I, I should say, that paper is still under review. It's not yet published. 
but we expect it to be uh, accepted very soon. Uh, you know, it was, it was interesting because uh, in that paper, because we specifically wanted to look at adaptation and the ability of people to adapt and the, the role of adaptation. And, you know, again, there's a lot of people out there who will say stuff like, oh, we'll, we'll get by, you know, we'll figure out as the temperature warms, we'll deal with it. And, you know, we will deal with it. But, you know, some people will deal with it by dying. Other people will deal with it by spending all of their money on air conditioning, and they won't have money to pay for college tuition or go on a vacation or start a small business. I mean, it's going, adaptation is going to be very hard, and it's going to be very expensive. And, you know, the people who say, we'll deal with it, those are almost always rich people. Because they will deal with it. You know, you never hear a poor person say, oh, I'm not worried about heat. I'll just install an air conditioner because they know they don't have the money to do that. Well, they just had a heat wave of death level in India, and various Indian media pointed out that almost half the population must go out and work outside every day. And if they don't work that day, they don't have enough food for the family for dinner. So there's not a lot of adaptation they can do. Oh, yeah, that's right. And again, the people that say we'll adapt, those are not people that work outside. Those are people that work in offices, and, you know, they will adapt. They're wealthy office workers. The people who, someone who works outside never says, oh, I'll adapt. In your 2021 investigation with Jiang Ho Li and Jeff Mast, you found, quote, increases of heat wave indices are significant between 1.5 degrees C and 2 degrees C of warming, end quote. Why? What happens after that 1.5 level that makes heat more dangerous? A point I always like to make is that there really are no thresholds in the atmosphere in the sense that there's no tipping points, really, that we know of. Uh, you, know, you can imagine some exist, but it's really the case that every tenth of a degree of global average warming makes things worse. And so... People often talk about 1.5 degrees C as a threshold we can't breach. But to be honest, 1.5 degrees is not that much better than 1.6 degrees. And, you know, 1.6 degrees is not that much better than 1.7 degrees. So, you know, our goal should really be to keep warming as, as low as possible. And that's really what I focus on. I, I think that there's probably too much of a focus on the specific Paris Agreement targets of 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius I always tell my students, don't get depressed if, you know, we miss the 1.5 degree target. You know, that's not good news, but, you know, if we stop at 1.7 degrees, you know, that, that's a lot better than 2.7 degrees or 3 degrees. And so we should, our goal should be to keep warming as low as possible and, and sort of don't fixate on these particular targets. I agree with that totally. So by 2012, you published a guidebook to the climate debate, and publicly you compare propaganda from the tobacco industries and what big oil and gas interests are pushing today. How do you see those relating? So in the 60s, the scientific evidence connecting smoking with health impacts was really overwhelming. So the U.S. Surgeon General actually put out a report in 1964 that, you know, talked about all of the health impacts of smoking, which were really were extremely well established at that point. You know, I always ask my students, so what do you think the cigarette companies did? Did they say, oh, yeah, sure, our cigarettes are harmful, don't smoke them? You know, of course they did not do that. 
they, they developed what are, is often referred to as the tobacco playbook, which is this, you know, how do you keep doing something which is really bad for society, but which makes you a lot of money? And, you know, you start out by questioning the science, for example. And then you talk about, you know, freedom. You know, people, you know, this, we don't know that cigarettes are actually causing health impacts. The, the, sci- the science is split. Some scientists say it does, but some scientists, scientists say it doesn't. And, you know, the government shouldn't be telling you what to do. And, you know, everybody here is familiar with the arguments. They've just been, you know, you've, you've heard exactly those arguments time and time again. And in particular, you hear them from the oil companies, and you hear them from the fossil fuel apologists, the people out there who are trying to delay action on climate change. They make exactly the same arguments that the tobacco companies did, which is, we're not sure, the science isn't settled, and, you know, how dare the government tell me I can't use natural gas? You know, it's exactly the same arguments. And, you know, to say the oil companies, the fossil fuel manufacturers have really learned from the experience of the tobacco companies, how to cast out and essentially run this rearguard action to keep policy from being implemented. And the thing that's important to understand is the goal is never to win the debate. You know, the tobacco companies were never trying to prove that cigarettes were safe. They were just trying to create enough doubt that it, it slowed down regulation. And the, the um, fossil fuel companies and their propagandists are doing exactly the same thing. They're not trying to win the debate because they can't. They're just trying to throw enough chaff into the air that it confuses people, and so people don't really know who to believe, and it's confusing, and uh, I, I'm just not going to worry about it because I, I don't understand the science, and I see these people yelling at each other, and, and they've been very successful at, at slowing down policy to address climate change. And you took on one of the scientific, one of the few real scientist deniers, Richard Linson. And Linson is a real atmospheric scientist. He has discoveries and papers to his name. And yet he worked with the Koch-funded Cato Institute and allegedly got money from Peabody Cole. What is your assessment of his role in the so-called climate debate? So if you're a fossil fuel company and you want to try to cast doubt on the science of climate change, what the tobacco companies found is that the most effective messengers for that are scientists. Scientists are widely respected in our society. So the tobacco companies set up a tobacco institute. They had the scientists come out and say, we don't know if tobacco is bad for you. And so the oil companies obviously wanted to, and the coal companies uh, wanted to reproduce that. And so they went out, and they're, they're not very many, but there are a few legitimate credentialed atmospheric scientists who don't accept the mainstream view of science, and um, Dr. Lindzen is one of them. There's, again, very, very few numbers of them. I can count them on one, one or two hands. Um, and so they used him to try to push their message of doubt. Again, it's straight out of the tobacco playbook. You, know, you want to have a scientist telling you that the science is uncertain. You don't want to have a PR person doing it. You know, it's ironic. In 2019, I interviewed Tapio Schneider from NASA and Caltech, and he postulated tropical clouds could break up at some point of warming, likely beyond 1,200 parts per million CO2 and or beyond. But that's sort of what Richard Linson argued with his iris effect when he predicted Earth would only see about half a degree of warming because of changes to tropical clouds. But I guess he must realize by now that's just wrong. Uh, you know, I have no idea what he realizes. Um, I do think, though, that the arguments were 180 degrees different because 
Lindzen's argument was that the reduction in clouds would allow more, uh, basically, heat to escape to space. And that would actually act to stop warming, whereas Professor Schneider's argument is that these clouds are, gonna, are going to actually let in more sunlight, and it's going to cause runaway warming. So the arguments are 180 degrees different. In neither case do I spend a lot of time worrying about them. I think um, Dr. Lindzen's arguments have been disproven. Um, his argument that the change in cloudiness will act as a break on warming, we don't see any evidence that that's supported. And for Dr. Schneider's argument, it may be right, but if we get to 1,200 ppm of carbon dioxide, uh, you know, it's, it, it's going to be so bad that it's all, the break of clouds will almost, will almost be not worth worrying about. Right. That's a quadrupling of CO2 in the atmosphere. You and I wouldn't be talking over the Internet if any of that happened. So you are also director of the Texas Center for Climate Studies. Do you think scientists in Texas get more heat from the fossil fuel industry or the governor? You know, uh, when I moved to Texas in 2005, I was worried about that. But to be honest, the Texas state government essentially ignores us. I think they understand that if they tried to suppress us or in any other ways attack us, it would actually be really, it'd be bad publicity and it wouldn't get them what they want. I do think, though, that if you read the news these days, you see that the people in Austin, uh, our state capital, are um, trying to dilute the, or some of them are talking about diluting the protections of tenure. And if they get rid of tenure, then... I think um, all bets are off. I think it, it will be very difficult to be a climate scientist in Texas if you don't have tenure, if you're worried that your contract won't be renewed because people are mad about your research or what you're, talk, what you're saying. I mean, with tenure, I can just say, hey, here's what, the, here's what the science says. I don't have to worry about people being mad about it. But without tenure, I think it would be quite dicey. But so far, it's been, you know, working in Texas has not been an issue. And as much as a state may not want to hear, the state government may not want to hear what I want to say, they don't seem to, it hasn't slowed them down. After your presentation in December 2016, a student in Arkansas asked what we all want to know. Is climate disaster already determined, baked in, or, or can we save ourselves still? What do you say now? What I said earlier is, let me just repeat that, which is that there really are no thresholds. You know, one degree of warming, which is where we are now, there are impacts associated with that. Some of them are really bad impacts. You know, we're probably going to hit one and a half degrees in, you know, the next decade, uh, or maybe a little bit beyond that. That's going to be worse than one degree. You know, hopefully we can stop the warming by two degrees. Um, I'm optimistic we can do that. Every tenth of a degree of warming makes it worse. So I, I don't look at this as a binary situation where it's disaster or not disaster. I look at it as sort of this continuum. There are bad impacts now at one degree of warming, globally averaged. They'll be worse at 1.2 degrees or 1.4 degrees, 1.6 degrees, 1.8 degrees. But we just need to stop it. And when we stop it, then the impacts will stop getting worse. And that's really what we need to focus on. From Texas A&M University, we have been speaking with atmospheric scientist Professor Andrew Dessler. Find links to the papers and videos we discussed in my show blog at ecoshock.org, along with more notes on the big role of water vapor in the climate story. Andrew, it's been a treat to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio. 
for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. In a presentation on climate reality, Andrew Dessler explained how big oil and gas downplay the horrible risks using strategies from the rearguard action by tobacco companies. Here's a short clip from Good Morning America in 1982. After the Surgeon General of the United States reported tobacco definitely causes cancer and other diseases, this is the ploy by Bill Dwyer, Vice President of the Tobacco Institute, on TV. See if you can translate it into global warming talk by fossil fuel companies and their lobbyists today. Today, the government released a new report on smoking and health, which said that there is no, excuse me, that there is, that there is overwhelming evidence that cigarette smoking causes lung cancer and is a major factor in heart disease. The tobacco industry says that there is no, repeat, no conclusive evidence that smoking causes cancer or heart disease. Yesterday, we discussed this new report with the United States Surgeon General, uh, Julius Richmond, and John Pinney of uh, Health, Education, and Welfare. And this morning, Bill Dwyer, who is Vice President of the Tobacco Institute, is with us. And Steve Bell joins our conversation from Washington. Good morning, Mr. Dwyer. Good morning, David. Thank you very much. But if everybody made the choice to quit smoking, then, of course, there wouldn't, let's say, be any more tobacco industry. So it's in the interest of the industry to keep people smoking if they're going to continue to make a profit. Why should the public believe you as opposed to believing the Surgeon General and all the doctors and the reports from the government? David, I don't think it's quite so much a matter of believing us versus someone else. It's believing what the facts are. And the facts shouldn't all come from a single source. It isn't really just our statement of contradiction or difference with the Surgeon General. There are many independent men and women of science who don't believe that the causal conclusion yet has been reached. David, we don't deny that there is statistical evidence. Smokers in greater number than non-smokers do fall victim to these various diseases. But we must remember that, for example, most smokers don't develop lung cancer, and certain non-smokers do as well. We think it's an open question. Not everyone will die from climate change, and some of those folks would have died anyway. Tobacco spokesman Bill Dwyer on Good Morning America 1982, laying out all the lines now used by the oil, gas, and coal companies. They want to pacify you as the world heats beyond recognition so they can burn their profitable products. Coming up, drying lakes around the world, and that new Dolly Parton song, an anthem for action in the heat. Experts say about one-quarter of the world's population resides in a basin of a drying lake. In fact, half the world's lakes are shrinking. Why? And what does it mean? We reached Dr. Ben Livney, author of a new study just published in Science May 18th. Ben is a civil engineer and associate professor at the University of Colorado, Boulder. We tracked Ben down in Israel, from Israel. Ben Livney, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Hey, thank you so much, Alex. Great to be here. There are some surprises and new worries in this work. What did lead author Fang Fang Yao and your team set out to discover? Yeah, so we kind of set out to discover what the largest lakes in the world have been doing over the past 30 years. We had access to some new satellites 
data that could tell us about changes in elevation footprint. So we could actually calculate volume changes. And we wanted to understand what was driving changes in lake water volume across the globe. Well, in January 2022, a team of scientists from Nanjing University of Geography published a study finding, quote, a net water mass gain in global lakes. It seems like your team found the opposite. How does that work? So I think a lot of it comes down to the number of lakes and which lakes people are looking at. So some studies look at a, a large number of lakes, smaller lakes as well, and it kind of depends on how you do the arithmetic, I guess. So we took the 2,000 or so largest lakes, which represent about 87% of freshwater on Earth, and we showed that about a little over half of those are declining, and of those, a little more than half of the decline is actually caused by humans, either directly or indirectly. Are there certain parts of the world where lakes are losing water, like deserts or tropical zones? Yeah. So we found, generally speaking, more declines in lake water levels in arid regions. Although we did also find declines in humid regions, we found more declines in arid regions and also in areas that are close to very large human populations where humans are diverting and consuming water. But not all lakes are declining, right? That's right. And we found an increasing lake water storage in a number of places distributed throughout the globe, but in particular in cooler places, older climates like in northern Canada, for example, there's sort of a hot spot of increasing lake water storage. Although you found that Arctic lakes are generally in decline, and that surprised me because I thought, well, the Arctic is supposed to get wetter as the world warms. Uh, what's going on with Arctic lakes? So actually, the, in some parts of the Arctic, well, we know that temperatures are rising across the globe, and we also know that the Arctic is seeing some of the largest increases in temperature across the planet. And so what we found was that rising temperatures actually have contributed to some of the decline in these northern lakes. And we sort of looked at what was the largest contributor to lake water decline. And in a lot of those cases, it was temperature. So I guess we need to learn this new term, potential evapotranspiration or PET. So I'm guessing that a warmer atmosphere will hold more water and it's sucking some up out of the lakes. Is that what's going on? Well, you can kind of think about it like a warmer atmosphere is able to hold more moisture, which means it's able to pull more water away from the land and away from the lakes. So in a way, a warmer atmosphere is a thirstier atmosphere. And so when we talk about this term PET, that you just described, that's really what we're getting at. It's atmospheric demand for water that's going up generally together with rising temperatures. Could you describe a couple of lakes in decline, maybe where there are a lot of people living around them, and, and what that means for those people in the surrounding basin? Yeah. So there's a, a few examples. And I think if we, if we want to think about examples of sort of good management versus bad management. So in general, I would just say first that temperature, rising temperatures and evaporation contribute to 
fairly widespread declines in lake water, but those tend to not be these huge sort of disastrous landscape shifting declines. The cases where you have the biggest decline are essentially these cases where humans are diverting and consuming water in an unsustainable way. So some examples, for example, the Aral Sea, which is in uh, the former Soviet Union, it at one time in the 1960s was one of the top five largest lakes in the world. And because of diversion of the two rivers that flow into it, it's now declined by over 90%. So it's not even in the top 10 or top 20 anymore. You know, the Dead Sea is an example of a lake where diversions have essentially caused major declines. The, the water level is going down by something like one meter per year over the past 40 years. So that's a lot. Here, you know, or when we think about Colorado and the Colorado River Basin, some of those big reservoirs, people have done a good job setting up these thresholds or um, points at which they declare a shortage. And really what I think that embodies is that lake water levels and really healthy lake water levels are a priority. These systems where there's certain, you know, points at which we change our management strategies. But it seems in some places where you don't have good water management and the lakes are shrinking, people feel even more stressed for water. They want more irrigation water. And so it's almost like a positive feedback effect that uh, drier lakes might lead to drier lakes because of the human reaction. You're absolutely right. There tends to be this feedback loop. If you think about a drought, for example, a drought is usually a period of high temperatures and a higher demand for water. And yet, at the same time, there's a reduced supply. And so you have this pernicious loop. I think that another element of declining lakes is also just this sort of change in people's sense of place, sense of their sort of surroundings, because we know that humans love living on the waterfront. It's a, a very you know desirable real estate location. And when lakes decline and shorelines may recede far from communities. And so it can also be not just like a, a financial or a you know resource question, but it's also this more sort of human intangible experience, losing access to the waterfront. So your study finds almost half, if I understood it right, almost half the total loss of global lake storage comes from just one place, the Caspian Sea. I had to look that up because Iran calls the Caspian a lake and Kazakhstan calls it a sea, but it is fresh water. So how does its big role in water decline, does it reduce our worries about lake loss in other countries because half of it's coming from this one place? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the Caspian Sea indeed has a large impact, but even when we remove the Caspian Sea, we had essentially the same result, more than half of the lakes declining, and with still notable volume declines, uh, even when you remove that. So I think it, the Caspian Sea is obviously important, and yes, it is a freshwater body, but it, it doesn't sort of steal the show. Well, closer to your university, uh, last year the Utah Department of Natural Resources announced Great Salt Lake could dry up in less than five years. And this year's wet winter in the West partially refilled the lake. 
How can you rule out long-term natural cycles or extreme events like we are seeing this year in your general study trends? Yes, there are long-term cycles and there are extreme years. And, and so our study really just covers the period of 1992 to 2020. And so one of the sort of grains of salt to take study is that it is specific to those years. And in places where maybe things were wetter than average at the start of the time period, we would then see some kind of an artificial decline. Or if things, you know, if there was an anomalous change, some unusual event happened, that would be picked up. And so that's always the, the challenge with these types of studies is to try to capture the, what would you say, like a representative trend, despite all the noise and all the, the variability. Well, also surprising, human-controlled reservoirs added more water storage than global lakes lost. So we've overcome any loss of water storage. Problem solved? <laughs> I appreciate your optimism. Actually, one of the chief contributors to that reservoir storage game is simply these new reservoirs that were filled for the first time. Uh, and so I'm kind of afraid that that signal might be masking what's going on a little bit because those new reservoirs, essentially, it's a one-time thing that they're being filled. And, and that added water, I don't think it's really representative of the global picture uh, in general. And the reservoirs are not as permanent as we'd like to think. Some are losing storage capacity, and it's not just climate change. Talk to us about the role of sediments. Are they a long-term problem in the future, or are they already important? Yeah, so sediments in reservoirs is, a, I would say, a big problem. It's an existential problem. And just for listeners who may not be aware, the way this works is that our rivers tend to carry sediment in them from the channel, from the hill slopes. And when that river water stops moving or slows down, then those small particles settle to the bottom of the reservoir. And that may not seem like a lot in the short run, but after a few years or a few decades, that can sometimes mean a significant loss of total storage. And if we think about reservoirs as these long-term storage infrastructure, then that really starts to change their utility. And it really raises a lot of questions about water security in the long run. And so I see it as a very serious issue. I think that humans are smart and, and uh, have a lot of ingenuity to get around any real any problem. But I think that this is one that will take a lot of careful thinking. And we're counting on hydroelectric as part of our green energy plan to power the future. Are some hydroelectric projects threatened by loss of water in either lakes or reservoirs? Yeah, I think anytime you have a, a big change in lake water storage, you are running into concerns about the viability and the sustainability of hydropower. So I think that's a very real question and, and concern. I think it's a case-by-case -case type of thing because it, a lot of it comes down to the elevation of the intake for your hydropower and how uh, how high or how low that is relative to the elevation of your water level. Sediment plays a role. I'm thinking more about reservoirs here than natural lakes. And so there's a lot of interesting but challenging questions related to that hydropower piece. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. 
This is Radio Ecoshock. Our guest from University of Colorado Boulder is Dr. Ben Livney. We're talking about new science showing half of the world lakes are losing water. When it comes to human damage to the environment, climate change certainly isn't everything, but I can't help thinking that this lake shrinking problem could get worse as the climate heats up. But what are your thoughts, Ben? And so, well, what do we know about the way climate may change? So we're quite confident that things are going to get warmer. And actually, there's also some reason to believe that things may get a little bit wetter. So there may be more precipitation as we go forward. And it'll really come down to the balance between those two things. I think in many places, we will see more drying because of the warming. But because reservoirs and lakes tend to be these sort of collection basins, I also think we're going to get an upshot in some places. So I'm still sort of optimistic about things that, you know, on balance, we should be okay. But I think each reservoir is going to be a unique case. And just raising awareness, raising, uh, taking more observations so we have a better sense of what's going on, that's going to be kind of the path forward. Yeah, we don't have official bodies who, who measure the size and depth of every lake around the world. So how did your team manage to put all this together? Right. Well, that was exactly the problem that we were thinking about is that most existing observations of reservoirs are taken with local observations, and sometimes that information is not really available, either due to a lack of sharing or a lack of availability. So we use a global satellite, actually, to estimate the lake water storage. The first thing that we did was we took a, a new suite of satellites that can tell you the elevation of the water across these reservoirs. The second satellites tell you something about the footprint of the reservoir and how that's changing. And so if you know about changes in the height of the reservoir and you know changes about the footprint, you can actually calculate changes in volume. And the nice thing about that, because it uses satellites, is it's sort of available, you could say, roughly everywhere um, because these are space-borne instruments. And so that's how we were able to observe such a large part of the planet. And the amount of data behind this study is just unimaginable. Your group credits better algorithms and computer cloud processing. Ben, how long do you think it'll be before artificial intelligence makes the next breakthrough in your field? It really depends on how you define artificial intelligence, because you could argue that in some ways, artificial intelligence is already a part of this study in the way that we uh, attributed the different causes for the lake water change using these different algorithms. And so in many ways, I think that artificial intelligence is here and is already contributing. But when it comes to sort of coming up with these new ideas and innovative methods, I think we're pretty far still from artificial intelligence being sort of the, um, the creator of some of those methods. But instead, it's more of a collaborator with the human scientists at this. I could see a situation, though, where you have artificial intelligence combing through masses and masses of satellite data, and it comes up with a pattern that humans just haven't noticed. Oh, by the way, look, uh, lakes are shrinking. You know, I think that could happen. Oh, for sure. And I think that you do already see some of that happening now. I think we just have to come up with the interesting questions and then unleash the power of these computers and these algorithms to help us do the rest. 
So getting back to the climate front, how would less water on world lakes change the impact of the greenhouse gas emissions that we put up into the atmosphere? Well, less water, you know, in the extreme case, could lead to shortages of water, shortages of food. And you mentioned hydropower. There's also recreation and navigation. All of these things are affected by water levels. So that's kind of a direct impact. But, you know, when you think about how interconnected things are, and the global supply chain of food and goods and services. I think one of the probably most tangible impacts of any kind of sustained loss of global lake water would be just kind of affecting the cost of goods, the availability of goods, that kind of thing. That isn't to say that humans and our supply chain can't get better and be more adaptive, but I think that there's certainly stressors that we would feel if lakes were declining more significantly. We've had protest movements gathering to save the whales and the trees. Is it time to save the lakes? And what could be done for them? You know, that's a great, uh, great sentiment, actually. I think our lakes are super important, and we're just very lucky to have them because they're just this excellent resource that's very accessible. Uh, I think the biggest thing, and really... Any solution will involve a combination of awareness, so making it a priority to measure and report what's happening. So, you know, the current study that we did is like an example of this. We made a step towards improving our knowledge of what's actually happened so far. And then, of course, the second part would have to be something more actionable. Uh, So making it a priority to have healthy lake levels, this would come from sort of the policy or governance, kind of like what we see on the Colorado River Basin Reservoir. And some lakes are connected directly to glaciers, and uh, I guess changes in that ice world could add freshwater storage for a short period of time while the glaciers melt and then subtract when they're gone. That's absolutely right, and there's a lot of concerns over that happening in particular in some of the larger glacier systems like in the Himalayas in Asia where you have significant, significant amounts of almost prehistoric water that has the potential to be released at an unsustainable rate, like you say, a short-term boom, but then a long-term decline. From the University of Colorado Boulder, our guest is hydrology expert Dr. Ben Livney. With lead author Fang Fang Yao, Ben co-wrote the paper titled Satellites Reveal Widespread Decline in Global Lake Water Storage. You can find links to more in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Ben, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Thank you so much, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. We just have time for a bit of Dolly Parton's new song, World on Fire, released in May 2023. You can find it on YouTube or dollyparton.com. Thanks, Dolly. I'm Alex Smith, over and out for this week's Radio EcoShock.
Let's run. 